you have your Bibles, please meet me in Psalm 136. Now, if you are at all familiar with this text, it has a refrain at the end of each line uh, that, that repeats the word, the words, his steadfast love endures forever. And this is because it is, it is just, this, this psalm follows the songs of ascent in the psalms, and I'll get into that more later in my sermon, but this psalm was meant to be repeated aloud by God's people. So I would love your guys' help in reading this text this evening. So I will be reading from the ESV. I will read the first line, the first part of the line. So for this first verse, it'll be, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then I would love if you all would say out loud with me, for his steadfast love endures forever. That'll be for every verse in this psalm. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, look at that. If not, look at the screen. We should be right around the same spot. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone, to him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you.
It is part of our DNA that we tell stories regularly that follow a specific structure. Our stories normally follow some sort of protagonist who goes on some sort of journey throughout the course of a story. As the story progresses, the protagonist runs into conflict with some sort of force, whether it be internal or external. And the story then is about how the protagonist must overcome this challenge, becoming a better person as a result of their struggle. One of the biggest keys to understanding a story is the motivation behind the protagonist. Why is the main character trying to overcome this conflict? No character is ever trying to overcome conflict just because. If they were, I would propose to you that it's either a bad story or we as the audience are missing the point. Every character has some sort of motivation that is driving their decisions in the story. One of the most common motivations that we find in storytelling is that of love. We see characters that are separated from their loved ones and must go on a journey to be reunited with them. Think of movies like Finding Nemo or The Princess Bride. There are also stories where the protagonist must do something big for the good of the people that he loves. Think of Luke Skywalker destroying the Death Star in Star Wars or Frodo and Sam taking the ring to Mordor in Lord of the Rings. Then there are stories where people try to make relationships work out of love despite their differences. Think of Belle and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. They're great examples of that. In some of our culture's most revered stories, love is one of the biggest motivators of our favorite characters. I would like to propose to you this evening that the reason this is the case is because of how central love is to the story of the gospel. We as people were created to be in communion with God always. We were created sinless, enjoying the presence of the Lord while we would walk in paradise with God at our side. Then when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they no longer met the standard of holiness. And they let sin enter into their lives and in turn into all of humanity. We can no longer be together with God because our connection with him was severed. But because our God loved us, this is not where the story ended. Our God, motivated by love, set out a plan for our redemption. As Philippians 2 describes it, Christ emptied himself and came to earth, taking on a human nature and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is so his people could find redemption and be reunited with God once again and join back into this love that God has for his people. We as men and women have a desire to partake in this particular love. It doesn't matter what our personality is, whether you, an, you are an extrovert who needs to be with people constantly or an introvert who could live as a hermit for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter what culture you grew up in, whether it be an individualistic culture or an honor-shame culture. It doesn't even matter what your home life was like, whether you come from a loving home 
or an abusive one. We all, as human beings, have this innate desire in us to experience true, unending love. And this love is something that we can only find in a relationship with God. So this evening, we are going to look at exactly what God's love is like. Right now, we are in the middle of this series, looking at a selection of psalms and studying God's attributes. Well, tonight, if you haven't picked up from us reading Psalm 136, we are going to be looking at God's love. To give you a little bit of foresight into what we will, look, what we will be looking at tonight, we will look particularly at three different aspects of God's love, being God's overflowing love, God's loyal love, and God's steadfast love. Our goal and the main reason that we are studying this passage is to be like the Apostle John and see that God is love, just like he wrote in 1 John 4. So let's break this psalm down a couple of verses at a time. The first three verses really serve as the key to how we are supposed to think about this entire psalm and really drive a bunch of our application tonight. So let's quickly read it together again. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. As I said earlier this evening, the psalm follows the song of ascents in the book of Psalms. As the Israelites would travel up into Jerusalem during the three different feasts that would be celebrated throughout the year, they would recite the songs of ascent. You see, Jerusalem was a city that was placed on a hill, so the people, as they were walking up this hill, would repeat these handful of psalms. Psalm 135 and 136 act as an appendix to the Psalms of Ascent, meaning that when the Israelites were in Jerusalem, they would recite 135 and 136, acting as an invitation for worshiping and proclaiming God. That is why we are studying Psalm 136 this evening, and this is the lens we will be looking at God's love through the lens of thankfulness. He is the God of God and the Lord of Lords. There is none like him, and there will never be anyone like him ever. So the psalmist invites us as the audience to share in this praise of God, which is exactly why I had you all read aloud this psalm with me earlier this evening. Continuing on looking at psalm, uh, verses 4 through 9, we see the psalmist recall some of the great wonders that God has been doing in, in creating everything. It is by his understanding that he made the heavens. He is the one who spread out the earth above the water and made the great lights to rule the day and the night, being the sun and the moon. Our God created all things, and this is the substantial evidence for the overflowing love that God has for us as his people. And this is the first thing that I would like to explore with you all this evening, is God's overflowing love. For this point in particular, I would like to credit one of my favorite authors of all time, as well as actually one of my instructors down at Union, Michael Reeves, and his book, Delighting in the Trinity. 
If you haven't read this book, I could not recommend it enough. It's only about 130 pages, and it's one of the most fulfilling and just encouraging books that I've ever read in my Christian life. Specifically, I am adapting points from his second chapter on creation. So our psalmist begins this psalm by talking about how our God is separated from every other lowercase g God. He is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, meaning that he is above all others. This then leads the psalmist to talking about how how God is the one who created everything. God is loving because he created everything. This claim is uniquely is uniquely a logical consistency inside of the Christian faith because our God is a Trinitarian God. Let me explain. When we think of other gods that are worshipped here in this world, specifically monotheistic gods who claim to be creator, we usually also see that they claim to be eternally loving. But because these religions claim that these gods are only one person, Really, is, it is an eternally selfish love. When we think of a true and pure love, it is always as a love for others. If a singular God were to exist alone in eternity past, there would be nobody or nothing to love, making their love eternally inward-looking and selfish instead of outgoingly loving and selfless. A singular God, then, is entirely about self-gratification. Take the God of Islam, for example, Allah. He is said to have 99 names describing Allah in eternity. One of those names is loving, specifically a love for others, which means that Allah should be eternally loving for others. But the problem arises that Allah existed by himself before creation. So who or what was he loving? This raises a huge problem in the Islamic faith because one of the major, one of the major beliefs of the Islamic faith is that Allah is dependent on nothing. But how can he be eternally loving another if he existed alone? Michael Reeves writes this in response. He says, Such are the problems with non-triune gods in creation. Single-person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the god whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just, just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of, an, out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. But our God is not like that. Our God has existed in three persons throughout eternity. Our God has eternally existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father, existing eternally as Father, has been loving the Son forever. 
God then would go on to create the world and the people in it to enjoy the same love that he has for the Son. Again, Reeves writes this. He says, The Father has always enjoyed loving another. And so the act of creation by which he creates others to love seems utterly appropriate for him. Creation then exists as evidence of the overflowing love that God has, that God the Father has for the Son. Our God has a reason for creation, unlike the other selfish gods that people have created. We can see in scriptures that all three persons of this trinity have existed before time began. Through the Father's word, creation happened. We see that in Genesis 1. Christ then establishes and upholds all things. That's Colossians 1.16. And then the Spirit completes and perfects creation. Job 26.13. Thus, we can be assured that our God is eternally loving because he has eternally loved. The Father's love for the Son overflowed into creation with the express purpose that we may also join in to that same love and share it with him. Let me finish this point with one more quote from Reeves. He says, So the next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember, they are there because God loves because the Father's love for the Son burst out so that it might be enjoyed by many. And they remain there only because God does not stop loving. He is an attentive Father who numbers every hair on our heads for whom the fall of every sparrow matters. And out of love, He upholds all things through His Son and breathes out natural life on all through His Spirit. God's love overflowed into creation, creating us as his people to be brought in and to share this love. But now that God has created us out of love, how does this love affect us and relate to us after creation? And that is what we see here answered in the next part of this psalm. Instead of rereading the whole thing, I'm just going to read for you the first part of each verse, picking back up in verse 10. He says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. What we see here in this section is a recap of what the nation of Israel went through during their exodus out of Egypt. God has led the people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and through the wilderness, destroying all the nations that would oppose Israel. God is providing for the nation out of love because God himself calls Israel his firstborn son. The nation as a whole belongs to God and the love that God has for them is a love that will not be forsaken or thrown away. God has a loyal love for his people. 
One important thing to note about the Hebrew word that is translated as love here in this psalm is that there is some important thing that we can miss inside of the translation. There's a nuance that I would really like us to focus on in this section. You see, the word here that is used in every refrain is the word hesed. This word in Hebrew does mean love. So I'm not proposing that this is a bad translation, but more importantly, it highlights a specific area of love, and that is the commitment of love or the covenant nature of love. You see, some scholars then have changed this translation of this particular psalm from love to commitment love or loyal love. God's loyal love endures forever. So let us look then to see how the psalmist talks of God's loyal love in this part of the psalm. You see, the history of the nation of Israel cannot be understood apart from God's commitment to his covenantal relationship with his people. Our psalmist has traced a big part of Israel's history and sees and points out that God's love has been the thread that has connected each and every one of these events together. When faced with challenges of apparently insurmountable odds, all of this stacked against Israel through the hands of Pharaoh, Og, and Sihon, God would deliver the nation from their oppressors and would provide for them the land in which they were to dwell in. God may have placed them in these different battles, but he never abandoned the nation that he loved staying loyal to his covenant with his people. What is so amazing about God's covenantal and loyal love is that Israel would go on to make mistakes so many times throughout this portion of their history. The nation would consistently walk away building false idols and serve other gods after receiving immediate deliverance from the Lord. But God would never give up on these people. And he never gave up on them. He did not abandon them when they failed to uphold their part of the covenant. Of course, he would eventually discipline them for their unfaithfulness. But he never fully deserted them. Because God had established a covenant with Israel and loved the nation with his loyal love, he was not about to abandon them even after their own covenant unfaithfulness. I have personally experienced a type of this loyal love uh, in the context of my own family. I want to tell you a story about when I was about seven or eight years old and I made a huge mistake. I know, crazy. Seven-year-old making a mistake. That's, that's insane. Uh, it was the evening before Thanksgiving And I was really hungry after dinner, and my sweet tooth was calling to me. Uh, We had this big chest freezer in the garage, and I knew that there was some peppermint ice cream in that freezer calling my name. So I went outside to get it, only to see this giant stainless steel, like, five-gallon pot sitting on top of the freezer. Me being the kid that I am, I look at this pot, and I think, oh, I can handle this, no problem. I go to grab this pot and realize just how heavy it is, but I make this realization way too late, and I fall over with both the pot, and out of of that pot comes the turkey 
for tomorrow night's dinner and the multiple gallons of water and vegetables that the turkey was brining in, now all on the floor of the garage. Of course, I ran in the house crying <laughs> and uh, just, uh, just crying about what I had just done, thinking my life was about to be over because I had ruined tomorrow night's turkey and it was just sitting there naked on the garage floor. <laughs> After my parents saw what I was crying about, they rushed outside to grab the turkey while I ran upstairs to my room to await whatever punishment was coming my way. But after my parents had cleaned everything up, they came upstairs to my room to tell me everything was okay. They wanted to make sure that I was okay and that I wasn't hurt. They didn't care that I made this mistake. They weren't going to love me any less or kick me out of the house for messing up tomorrow's turkey. It just needed to be washed up and everything was going to be fine. My parents were going to continue loving me even though I messed up. You know, our Heavenly Father is the same way. He is not going to love any of us less because we mess up. We know that our God is, lo is a loyal and loving Father. He loves us and will continue loving us even when we make mistakes. The grace that our God shows us is not conditional on anything that we could do for him. It is freely given and once accepted cannot be forsaken. So when you feel like your sin is unforgivable, give it up to God and come before him. We have a loving father who is ready to embrace you in his love. When you think that you are too dirty and that you are beyond saving, come to God anyway. Let the work of the Son cleanse you from all sin as you come into communion with him. And when you feel like part of you is so sinful and broken that it will never get better, give it up to God and let the Spirit transform you. Our God's love is loyal. This means that our God's love endures forever and there is nothing that you can do that can possibly separate you from that love. Now, let's look at the last couple of verses from Psalm 136. Picking back up in verse 23, it says, It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Finally, tonight I want us to look together at what I'll describe as God's steadfast love. Specifically, how God moves in our lives to reveal himself to us so that we may come together into his love and enjoy union with Christ. Although this psalm is part of the Old Testament and was written before Christ became incarnate, this part of the psalm perfectly describes the work of Christ in our lives and how his, work has, how his work has changed our lives by saving us. God's love is steadfast and sure. And that means his love comes after us and changes us. 
you look at these last couple of verses, you realize the subject of God's work is no longer being talked about in a distant past tense, but a recent past tense. The psalmist has started to switch about talking and and started to talk about this, the recent past to see how God's love has affected and changed us as the audience. You see, this is a very natural way for us as Christians to be reading scripture uh, because we're removed by 2,000 years of history. You see, when we, when we come to scripture and we study the history of Israel, the life of Jesus, and the work of the apostles, we do not simply read this text and think, oh, that was a cool thing for God to do, good for those guys, and then just forget about it. No, we draw out principles in the proper context from these stories to see how God worked back then, how he's working now, and how God will work into the future. This is exactly what the psalmist is doing in this situation. We know that the love of the Lord is not something that changes year by year or slowly dies out like a fire burning out its last log. Instead, we know that God's love has eternally existed, staying the same since before time began as the Father has eternally loved the Son. Our, God, our Lord is eternally loving because God is love. So we know that the same love that is applied to ancient Israel is applied to us as his church too. If God's love is steadfast like our psalmist is claiming it is to be, that means a couple of things for us. First of all, it means that God remembers us in our sufferings. Verse 24 of this psalm, it says, It is he who remembered us in our low estate. Remember, at the beginning of the Exodus account, Israel was put into slavery by Pharaoh, and the nation cries out to God in their suffering. In Exodus 2.24, it says, And God heard their groaning and remembered his, Abra- his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, God saw and God knew their sufferings. Hold on to that for a second. God does not only hear us in our sufferings, but he also helps us in our sufferings as well and rescues us from our foes. Again, verse 25 of Psalm 136, he rescued us from our foes. Again, going back to the Exodus account, God calls Moses as his servant to head into Egypt and help free the Israelites from their slavery. When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 7, only seven verses after that previous Exodus passage that I just read, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Again, we see this line traced traced through that God heard, God saw, and God knew their sufferings. So God sends help to relieve his people of his sufferings, not just in Exodus, but even now to this day. And thirdly, he provides for us in our times of need. Verse 26 of Psalm 136, he says he gives food to all flesh. For the Israelites who fled out of Egypt, they were given the promised land. There were many mighty and evil kings to be defeated, But our God provided for them in times of need, just as he continues to provide for us to this day. I saw a great example of this steadfast love 
played out this past Sunday. Last Lord's Day, when we were in the community center for service, I saw this happen. I was packing up the sound booth at the end of service as Hugh stood by chatting to someone. Then from out of nowhere, Emmy, his daughter, started crying from the other room. Hugh was looking in the complete opposite direction from where her cry was coming from. But even though he wasn't even facing it, even though he wasn't near to any, 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 any she, he wasn't near to her at all at that moment, he knew instantly that it was his daughter crying. And he said, that one's mine, and left to take care of her. The same is true of our Heavenly Father. He knows the cries of his children and provides for them just as earthly fathers know and provide for their children. So this evening, my challenge for you is to rest easy in the love of God. He is an ever-loving and an ever-gracious father who loves his children dearly. I know that many of you have been in, in, in the pits lately. There's been something that has felt like a huge hurdle in your life, whether that be a health problem, a snag in a relationship, worrying about finances, whatever it is, lean into the love of the Lord. Every problem that we run into, every trial that we come across has an answer for us in the gospel. So lean into the Lord our God. Let us remember God's faithfulness to his people in the past. And let it compel us to have a hope and a future in which God's vision of reality continues to unfold. A future in which God's overflowing, God's loyal, God's steadfast, hesed love shapes us and shapes the world around us. The Lord has been working throughout the whole of redemptive history, and he is still working to this day. The love that he extends to us is an extension of himself. So that means taking part and enjoying in God's love is taking part in God himself. If you, are given, if you have given your life to God, then rest easy in his love. And if you have not, if you do not know God, if you are not in a relationship or in fellowship with him, and come to him. His love is open to all, regardless of any mistakes or sin or whatever you have done in your life. His grace and his love are available to all people. This is because our God is love. So come before him and partake in this love, for it is freely given and it will not be forsaken. Amen. Let's pray.